This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to my Monday night show. Uh, tonight, I'm joined by Eloise, and we work together. She is um, one of the English teachers at my school, and we're going to be talking about what it's like to be a teacher with dyslexia, and how it affected us becoming teachers, and what it's like teaching with dyslexia. Feel free to call in or add in your messages and comments if you'd like. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Hello and welcome. So um, we're going to be talking about teaching um, with dyslexia. So to give you a bit of kind of background in dyslexia, um, obviously about one in 10 people in the UK, according to the NHS, have dyslexia. Um, And it's basically a a way that our brain just thinks slightly differently. Um, There are lots of famous and successful people with dyslexia, um, such as Tom Cruise, Keira Knightley, Sir Steve Redgrave, Sir Jackie Stewart, Sir Richard Branston, Albert Einstein and Cher. Uh, So I'd like to think I'm within good company there with some successful dyslexic people because quite often people think that dyslexia holds you back but it's, it's not quite that, it just means that you think slightly differently. According to the NHS website, um, a person with dyslexia may read and write very slowly. They may confuse the order of letters. They may confuse letters that look similar and write letters the wrong way around, such as D's and B's, have poor or inconsistent spelling, understand information when told verbally, but have very difficult uh, being able to information that's written down, find it hard to carry out a sequence of directions and struggle with planning and organisation. Uh, welcome Eloise can you hear me okay I can hear you can you hear me I can indeed excellent Uh, you feel like you hit a lot of those boxes um I think my dyslexia is it it is that but it's also at the same time I I actually find maths really hard so um when I went to go and be diagnosed um I actually went in for a dyscalculia test and they came back and said, well, you, you don't have dyscalculia because I could, I can recognize numbers and I can do maths. They then came back and said, it's that you've got dyslexia. And at the time I was a little bit like, no, I don't like, I don't, I don't really understand. Like I've got dyscalculia, but when they then started to explain it to me and they were like, well, it's a processing disorder and, um, it can, Uh, affect the way that you comprehend texts and like the way that you see words and it then sort of really started to explain a lot of things to me because I do have a lot of problems with spelling 
I do find it really difficult to comprehend texts and I have to read things more than once in order for them to really go in and for me to recognize what's happening. And so when I kind of sat down and I actually had a look at what dyslexia was, which before that point, I'd never really thought about it before, um, it, it kind of did resonate with me. So I suppose, yeah, I do have some very, very typical traits of dyslexia. What age were you then you discovered that you were dyslexic? Um, I was 21. Oh, okay. So quite later on. I, yeah. I was just um, picked up quite early. So I was picked up my GCSE year. Um, but I remember quite early memories of it. So I remember in primary school having spelling tests and we had to remember 30 spellings a week. We were told if we all got 30 out of 30, our teacher would stand on the table, do the can-can and buy us all McDonald's. <laughs> and the closest we all got was everybody got um 30 out of 30 except for me that got 29 and I just I just hated that test every week and then everybody hated me after that that's for sure um but I also remember them telling me to rewrite they so I used to spell they t-h-a-y and you know yeah. normally you write it out three times my teacher got so annoyed with me she got me to write it out a hundred times and I think about halfway through, I changed it back to T-H-A-Y and I didn't even clock it. I, that was my thing is is that they didn't clock it. And that's when they started picking it up when I moved schools and obviously GCSEs. My teacher kept telling me to reread my writing, reread your writing. And and it was it, I was rereading it because I was joining up words and doing the wrong letters the wrong way. I was still reading it normally. I didn't see my mistakes and they find they found that quite frustrating with me. But then that kind of led to the diagnosis. So I was lucky in the fact, I think they picked it up just before my GCSEs. Um, so that was quite lucky. So I got my extra time in my GCSEs and, and my A-levels, but um, but it was quite a long time before I was actually picked up. I was obviously showing symptoms quite early on. Yeah, I, I have a, a similar story of um, not being able to spell when I was in primary school. Um, and we, cause you know, they, they used to give me spelling tests and I quite distinctly remember one of my teachers when I was probably in about year four, trying to get me to spell the word government or government and I couldn't spell it. And it didn't matter how many times she was going, no, no, no. And she made me stand up in front of the whole class and I had to keep going and going and going until I could spell and I just couldn't do it. And even now I say the word government, government because that helps me to know how to spell it because I, I feel like I was traumatized by the fact that I couldn't spell. But when when I was diagnosed as having dyslexia, I remember calling my mum and saying to my mum that they say I've got dyslexia. And my mum was a bit like, is that why you can't spell? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's exactly why I can't spell. And her saying to me that she knew that there was something wrong, like she's she kind of had suspected that there wasn't like it wasn't just that I wasn't trying and she can remember one of my teachers saying oh the reason she can't spell is because she doesn't read enough but I was a voracious reader I used to read all the time and she just couldn't understand why I couldn't spell when I was like I was good at reading I liked reading and I used to do it a lot so it wasn't I think it just wasn't something that crossed her mind because I read so much and nobody really picked it up because I, I did read so much. But when you're a child, you know, you kind of just read books. And I used to only ever read things that I liked. 
and that I would read more than once and I still do it now I read books over and over again and so people thought I was really good at reading but I would read things over and over again which is why I could comprehend them I think that's the thing with dyslexia is that you are doing things repeatedly so it you if you're reading you go back I reread the same thing over and over again I feel like by the time I got to the bottom of the paragraph I've forgotten what was at the start and I need to go again and it's it does seem to be everything takes longer so it almost feels like it's a little bit harder to almost achieve because you're having to kind of re um read things everything takes yeah. a bit longer but it was a bit like you I think I, earlier on I remember being sent for a lot of uh hearing tests like I think they thought it was because I wasn't listening was the reason that I wasn't kind of comprehending stuff but I did read books about animals I remember being quite interested in them but I didn't I did fall out of reading for quite some time I really struggled with it and then I kind of <laughs> when I hit 16 my sister introduced me to Jackie Collins and suddenly I was loving reading um, <laughs> reading like a book a week in the summer I was loving it um but it did take me a while to kind of build that confidence with it and that even now I love buying books I love the concept of books but I'm just like they just take me so much longer to read than I want them to yeah I know that feeling. If I if I'm like really into something, then I can read it relatively quickly, but I then will get to the end of it and someone could ask me what happens in the middle and I'd have no idea. So I can like quite frequently I remember the beginnings of things and I remember the ends of things. But if you asked me what went on or why did like why did that character decide to do that, then like I've got no I, I just I don't remember. It's like my partner, he loves harry potter and he can literally tell you loads of stuff about harry potter i've read all of those books and yeah i do not remember the same things that he remembers i remember the parts that like i related to so i remember a lot of stuff about hermione but i don't really remember like anything else because i I just don't think it goes in so that's quite interesting. So um, I was reading on another website and it has slightly different things about dyslexia. Um, but I wonder whether any of these resonate. So um, here's clocks ticking and the sounds of pencil scratching on paper, but doesn't hear what the teacher says. So that's from like the student perspective, but forgets names of people's places, their own phone number or date of birth, but they can remember song lyrics. Uh, frequent flyer in the prop- lost property box and everything goes missing has a messy room. I mean, you see my classroom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> tells stories in a jumbled up way, starting in the middle. Doesn't look where they're going and frequently um, bump into things. I mean, I've broken two feet in six months, so um, that one might <laughs> yeah, match really up as well. Yeah, you really doing that. <laughs> I know. Uh, trouble lining up, st- don't, doesn't stop talking, fidgeting, um, calls lunch, breakfast, lunch, and gets things muddled up. Um, and little sense of time I definitely that I think I get very lost in a task I quite often feel like I start a task and suddenly like oh what was I didn't have concept of time with doing that has limited concentration span especially with anything writing Um, quite often exhausted after school with no energy I mean I think that's just being a teacher though Um, (laughs) says I don't care or I won't when they mean they can't now our students are quite good at using that um, or can be a quiet child who's withdrawn um, and doesn't like to get involved um, or quite often says they have um, a headache. So I feel they're kind of slightly different kind of list to your typical list. Hmm. But um, there's a lot on there that 
I certainly was like, oh, I do a lot of those things. Yeah, I, I quite frequently will say to people, like, I've got no sense of distance, space or time. I, I, I definitely just... walk into things a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I literally bought myself an Apple Watch so that I could time tasks because I was finding, like, when I was... Um, when I was training, one of the things that was constantly brought up was that I would say like, oh, you've got 10 minutes to do this. But I then would give them 15 because I didn't have any concept of the fact that time was moving on or I wouldn't have a concept of how long something should take. So I'd give too much time for tasks that shouldn't take that much time and then not enough time for tasks that would need a lot of time. Um, and so I've, I've kind of been able to combat it by having an Apple watch, you stick the time on and then it literally goes off on my arm. So I have to pay attention to it. I'm the same. So I put a lot of timers into my PowerPoints to make me stick to those times. Um, and I'm also very much that teacher that is like, I'm like, oh, okay, we've got kind of five, six minutes before we need to pack away. And then I will lose all concept of time. And it's like 20 nine minutes past I'm like you need to back up now go 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 like I that last 10 minutes of the lesson I think is ages and it just disappears and I just lose all track of it yeah I that's exactly what I do or I'll I'll stop things far too early because I think that it will take longer to pack away than it actually does yeah exactly it's that kind of concept of how long tasks um take um, Lydia's probably a, a good comment. So I do wonder how much reading will play a part in future as audiobooks and online writing with reader functions become more prevalent, as well as speech to text functions. It's definitely a key skill, but for how much longer? Because obviously, do you listen to audiobooks? Do you find that easier than reading? I find that I like, like you said earlier, like you like the concept of a book. I like books and I like, like, maybe it's just part and parcel of being an English teacher but I just love the way that a book feels and I love the smell of it and I love I just love everything about it and I've tried audiobooks and I find that it doesn't like I can't imagine things quite as well like when somebody's reading it to me if I read it to myself it's different but if it's somebody reading it to me I just don't engage with it as much I feel like yeah for me it's that kind of almost retention of it I feel like audiobooks because dyslexic students or people need a little bit more processing or uptake mm. time and I find that sometimes with audiobooks they go too quickly and I kind of miss it or I like zone out for a second and then I've lost it um but again like, I'd, I'd love the idea of kind of listening to them in the car and delving into more information but concentrating on two things at once I'm either zoning in and out and I'm not quite picking up as much as I would if I was to read it yeah I do exactly but it's certainly quicker I do think though, have you seen the the pens that you can kind of go over the text and it reads it out loud? Yeah, I have seen those. I do think if I had that in terms, especially for my spelling, if I had was able to do that and hear the word to then be able to write it, or if I was reading a text and to be able to hear it to help me, because quite often I read things and phonetically, so it does. I, I struggle with what that word is. So actually, if I could get an instant way of hearing it out loud, I think that would definitely have helped me at school. Yeah, I do like. I think that there is there is a there's definitely a place for audiobooks in like the the way that the world is going. 
but I just think that like I don't think the book can ever die <laughs> like I think <laughs> there will always there will always be people like me and you who need like I, I feel like almost it's like a, it's a visual thing like if I know how long a book is or if I I like I like the feel of it in my hand and I like being able to kind of have it there in front of me and it is a case of sometimes I like I do need to read things more than once and I need to go back and in an audio book you're like it's it's too hard to do that and it's too hard to find the bit that you want to listen to again um or the chapter that you want to read because you just want to check something like I I just think that I think there's such a place for books in the world and I I I do think as well that there is this kind of conception that people that are dyslexic that they they can't read or they don't enjoy reading and it isn't always the case and sometimes like I've taught dyslexic students that get such a like they they like being able to get to the end of a book and they like being able to come and say look I've read this book and that kind of sense of accomplishment that they get from having a book in their hands and going look at all of these words that I've been able to read is something that visually for them is really important and I think it's confidence building I think it's picking the right book for the student as well isn't it because I very much found that um as a kid it had to have like big text that's easy to read and also because it was bigger text I felt like I was turning more pages so I felt like I was achieving like I felt like as a kid if I was reading and it was small text I just feel like I'm not getting through that book and it was a little bit disheartening how long it took me to get there yeah and it like it does it takes me ages to read certain things but if I read something if I read something too quickly it it just doesn't go in and I end up having to go back and read it anyway so I always think like I might as well take the time yeah I'm the same especially um (laughs) when you've got like not saying education is boring but when you get a certain (laughs) like document from uh high above or we have one of those kind of days where we've got to read some um safeguarding stuff and you've got to do the quiz afterwards you've got to try and remember it but it's a lot of pages I find that really tough I would love to be able to skim read and and read quickly and I and I try and I feel like I am training myself to get quicker at it but I do feel like it's something that I really I really struggle to skim read like I I feel like I have to read properly do you find that you can't read off a computer very well as well? Yeah, no, I print things out to read. I find it a lot easier and I find it easier to like highlight bits. So I remember where to go back. Like yeah. I, I have to kind of, if it's something important, I have to do it that way. That's exactly what I have to do. I find when when we get sent things and it's like, you can either have the, because I know sometimes they print off the printed versions and they'll say, we've got a printed version in the office, just come and collect one. I am that person that goes and collects the printed version because it, I don't know what it, I, I don't quite know why, but I've never, again, it was one of those things that when they said you're dyslexic and this might be one of the reasons why you can't read off computers, I was like, oh, and it, it's just all things started to click into place. And I think it's, I do wonder whether it is that kind of like, it's not there in front of me. And because it's not physically there in front of me, I just, I don't take it in. Whereas when it's there and it's in front of me and I can highlight bits and I can color code it and I can put post-it notes on it, then I am, it, it seems to go in much easier than if it's just off a screen and I can't really do anything with it. I think it's that idea, isn't it? That we're much more visual people and almost visual learners in that we have to kind of 
almost break it down. And it is that take up time. I find that, especially when we have those kind of CPD day, days where it's like, read this article and then we'll chat and everyone else is finished. And I'm like a quarter of the way through. And I, I find that quite embarrassing as a teacher that I'm not quick at kind of reading things. And I try and read kind of quicker or skim it, but then I don't really take it in. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it's kind of, is thinking about that. Uh, and, and like we've got in the comments, it's thinking about perhaps... And schools, we always kind of differentiate for the students and put in the scaffolding for students, but we don't really do it for the teachers um, and thinking about kind of doing that. And I, I find that I love I love education literature and reading about that, but I very much, much prefer going to an online CPD where I can watch and listen to somebody than I am kind of necessarily like reading um, a document. As much as I love kind of learning about it, I find the kind of visual side of it much easier to take in. Yeah, sometimes as well when you're asked to read things and then like you have to have a discussion after it, like that, it fills me with dread when someone says read this and then talk about what you think about it. Because I'm like, well, I need to read it three times (laughs) before I'll be able to form my opinion because I can only comprehend certain bits of it at certain times. And in those kinds of situations, I remember being at school and being asked to do it and being at uni and when I did my um, PGCE doing the same thing in that I would like fixate on a very tiny bit of it that I could read quickly in the time that it took everybody else to read the whole thing because then I and then I would only talk about that bit yeah exactly I I quite often skip to like three quarters of the way through and be like right that's the bit I'm going to focus on because it's going to look like I've read more or I let everybody else speak first and listen to their opinions and then I will join in and give kind of try and find something that I've read that supports it but but it is that kind of idea that it does take a lot longer for it to kind of sink in and 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 have that take-up time as well I think is really important I think that's what I especially felt when I went to university is that especially with my dissertation I was working just as hard if not harder than the other people but I never got the top grades it was always like good it was passable it was always like middle of the road even though I put so much effort in I was like I really feel like I've nailed that I like work so hard on it it was it was always extra effort to only get mediocre if that makes sense and that's quite disheartening I can understand why like perhaps kids with dyslexia like take the easier route or or perhaps don't put as much effort in because it is a lot harder to do tasks yeah I was I have always kind of looked at people around me as well. Like again, when I was at uni and when I then went and did my PGCE and I always used to think like, am I, am I not working as hard as these people? Even though I knew that I was, and I always, I think I always felt like I was having to work harder for what other people seem to be able to get just by rolling out of bed. Like it, it never seemed like I was doing enough even though I knew that I was. And when I was eventually diagnosed, I then kind of was a bit like, well, this this is why. Like, this is why I've always felt this sense of like, I am not working hard enough or I'm working much harder than any of these people because I was. And my like, I was having to do double the work that everybody else was doing because they could read some stuff once and get it and I was having to read it twice. And then... I was writing essays, um, whereas I've got friends that will literally write an essay overnight and they were getting firsts for it 
and I was writing an essay and then going back and reading it 16 times and still finding mistakes in it. I think that's mine, especially. Um, I even uh, sent them over to uh, Edwina today to read through for me. And, and like she's correcting my spelling and correcting my grammar. Like I can't believe that at my age, I, and I, I even send things to my mum sometimes because I'm me like, too. <laughs> I just need somebody to check it out. Um, and and just there's bits I will read it through so many times and I still will miss it and I think also as well like that kind of quite often I have to read what I've written aloud and then I'm more likely to see the mistakes and that's something I've noticed later on I guess it's maybe as a younger I wasn't confident enough to read things aloud but now I can kind of if I read it aloud I can pick up my mistakes slightly easier yeah I do exactly the same thing when I send um emails to parents I'll type them all out and then I'll sit and I'll read them back to myself and I'll go through and like correct the grammar or I'll be like, oh, that should have a capital letter on it or that sentence is too long. But only if I read it out loud, because if I just read it in my head, I don't notice that. I would say probably a good 50% of my emails have been mistaken because I just type them and send them. (laughs) Like I don't, or I'll, I'll read them and then I'll send it and then I'll read it and I'm like, oh I like why didn't I not read that like a second time like that's I find that quite difficult especially when it's going to like parents or something like that but you've just done it because sometimes you just don't have the time like can you imagine having to read your emails and double check your emails two three times a day before you even send them like that in itself is increasing your workload massively compared to another teacher yeah like it it the idea of sending an email to anyone official <laughs> makes me or or a parent it, it makes me feel anxious like it fills me with anxiety and I will have to read emails over and over and over again it's even like I literally this evening have sent a complaint to British Gas and I read the email like six times before I sent it because I was like I need this person at British Gas to think that I'm literate like I don't even know who this person is <laughs> and I still I have that fear I have that fear that people are going to think that I'm not intelligent because of the way I write yeah exactly and when you're emailing someone to complain about a service it's kind of like I I need I need this to sound like intelligent and like I know what I'm talking about and I panic and I worry and it fills me with anxiety all of the time I mean, Pat's commented about Grammarly, but I do think that is my saving grace is is technology. Having spell check and grammar check is just basically a godsend. Uh, like my poor trainee, I'm typing. and I'm like, oh, I spelled that wrong. Oh, I spelled that wrong. Uh, I think she just thinks I can't spell at all. But I, I just, I think like, gosh, if I didn't have this and I was actually having to kind of, write stuff without any of that oh it would just look horrific and I just think how embarrassed I would be if people actually read what I wrote before I sent it out yeah I do (laughs) I'm constantly like thank goodness I didn't send that original email because this one is so much better (laughs) and I think especially like I'm gonna I'm gonna there's a the the Teach Talk Radio um chaps over Christmas were having like a, a room one oh one of what you would chuck in and one of those things were the teachers who could had spelling and grammar mistakes in their PowerPoints. Now I know they obviously did do the clause that obviously unless there's a reason that um uh, that would be there. 
but I just feel so much pressure to make sure that my PowerPoints, my handouts um, are all spelt correctly and worded correctly. Now, I know you being an English teacher, that must be tenfold. I I have found that there are times when I've made mistakes on PowerPoints and I've been... I don't know if the mocked would be the right word for it. Like it's not, <laughs> it's not like I'm outwardly mocked, but it's more like a, <laughs> you're an English teacher, like from students on occasion, like it's, and then when you like, and feeling this sense of like, I'm having to justify myself all of the time. And it's, again, it is something that does make me feel anxious. And if I recognize a mistake on a PowerPoint, whilst I'm teaching it I I physically can't leave it like I then have to go and correct it and annoyingly I'll recognize the mistakes on the powerpoints when they're being taught yeah and I'll go through them and like over and over again but the mistake will stay there because I think it's right and then I'll stand at the back of the room and I'll like be reading it while they're doing their work and I'm like oh that's wrong (laughs) and then I kind of sneak to the front to correct it I overthink them as well so like for example there's a a Millie in my tutor group um and I know she's Millie with a Y but in my head I'm like it's Millie with an IE because I over I, I overthink it and I'm like oh I'm definitely got to get it right and but it's not and she's she gets really annoyed with me she's like I was like oh I did email somebody about that and I was like she's like maybe you're writing my name wrong that's why you can't find the email and uh, it's just like I over like if I think something's spelt a certain way, I'll then talk myself out of it and make myself think that I've got it wrong. I just yeah. have these weird little chats in my head about what's right and what's wrong. I find names really hard to spell and then I get really concerned that I'll spell someone's name wrong. I mean, with a name like Eloise, I've spelt my entire life with people just spelling it wrong. Like on well, that occasion... was on that list, wasn't it? That not remembering people's names. And that's the yeah. one thing in teaching that I really struggle. I struggle really badly to remember students names I can I can remember their faces and I could tell you like where they sat what they had in their pencil case like what style I could pick their style of writing out in a, in a crowd but if you ask me their name I would really struggle yeah I do and but even like sometimes when it's like the way that it's spelt and then I get really worried about saying it wrong like Layla yeah. it, it's a name that I find really difficult to read even though I know that their name is Layla and that's how you say it if it was spelled L-A-Y-L-A I'm fine if it's L-E-I-L-A every time I'm like Leia Leia <laughs> and it and then yeah it, kids tell me not. off quite regularly for saying their names wrong um Neve for a long time I just couldn't comprehend that that was how that was spelled um and I do think like as kind of the way names are going people like spelling them a bit differently and it it does become a little bit more tricky I think and I I apologize when I get a new year group in if there's a kid that's name is not spelled phonetically I'm like I am going to get your name wrong for a good kind of month just keep reminding me and eventually I'll get it right but I'm going to apologize now because I'm dyslexic and I can't cope with how you spell your name Uh, but I, I will try it's not me purposely doing it I, it's just how I function yeah one of my favorite stories so I was diagnosed as being dyslexic when I was 21 
I told my parents that I'd been diagnosed as being dyslexic. And my dad then was like, oh, hang well, maybe I am as well. And he went and he, he mentioned this to somebody at work and his work um, paid for him to have a dyslexia test. And it came back that he was dyslexic and he was 52 when he was diagnosed as being dyslexic. And he, for years and years and years, my dad thought that Sinead O'Connor was called Sinead. <laughs> and Love I it. remember him saying to me and my mum once, oh, I really like that, like that song. Well, what's her name? Um, Sinead, Sinead. And we're like, Sinead? Who's Sinead? And he's like, you know, Sinead O'Connor. And we were like, oh, you mean Sinead? I <laughs> guarantee like, yeah. that I've called a kid Sinead, Sinead, when doing the register for the first time, the first time I've seen that name. I, I, I think I have done that. I'm pretty sure, I'm 90% sure that I said it that way. Yeah. Is that is 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 Sinead Sabo, Saboinen <laughs> rather than <laughs> rather than Siobhan. <laughs> like, Oh yes, it's just great. Any kind of Irish name, Caris. That's another one that I find yeah. really hard. But any Irish name, I just can't say. I was really pleased with myself that I learned that Sersha Ronan is called Sersha Ronan and not Sayosha or Sayuri. Yeah. It's just, it's really, it's really difficult. But it's interesting that you said that your dad got tested and he was dyslexic. Um, I had my mum and my sister on my last show. So if you haven't listened to that, go find that and have a good listen. Uh, it's quite an interesting show. Uh, but my mum's dyslexic and we all, we all openly blame her for our dyslexicness um, and that um, we, none of us can spell in our family. It's just, we're all horrific. Um, but it's quite interesting when she was teaching, she would say that she would she would leave the mistakes in. I think Pat's mentioned that as well. That and just uh, she would give commendations if the kids picked up her mistakes and kind of made the kids would really concentrate on her powerpoints because they wanted to find the mistakes. Um, and I've done that once where I made a mistake and I printed 150 copies with it in. <laughs> um, so I did kind of go right. The first person to find my spelling mistake in each class, you get accommodation and kind of make it into a bit of a game. But I do think I printed that same quiz out every year for a good three years before I remembered to change it. I'd always yeah, print I it and then thing. I'd be like, oh, I forgot. I do when I notice anything or if a child puts a hand up or a student puts a hand up and says, oh, miss, you've made a mistake. I will go, well done. I've left that in there specifically for you to uh, see. And now that you've seen it, I'm going to give you a star. <laughs> and I'm yeah. giving stars out left, right and centre to try and make it seem like it is a bit more of a game and try and like I, I sometimes I do think like there is this kind of conception that as teachers we should know everything and that we have to be perfect and the minute that we're not there is this kind of like oh miss has made a mistake and it's almost like it's hilarious for them but I think children quite frequently they need reminding that actually we are humans and we're not these weird teacher robots that power down every night and sleep in our cupboards like we actually are people who have these learning difficulties and who have their own kind of trials and by showing those mistakes it does it does remind them of that I think it gives them like a comfortable place to be able to make their own mistakes as well I mean we we um 
are at the same school and we actually have our secret dyslexic society we do. Uh, <laughs> where we let the kids know that we're dyslexic and there's Chloe as well the science teacher so it's it's kind of and when the dyslexic kids find out that you're dyslexic it, it's really interesting but I find the best one is when the kids go I can't do that or I'm rubbish at this because I'm just like I can't write because I'm dyslexic and I was like me too me too and that's why I've written that uh sentence start a help guide exactly that way because that's how I would like to write and that's based on how I find the easiest way to structure to write and they look at it and they're like oh actually yeah no I, I can do that and just is they put up this barrier of I can't do that because I'm dyslexic when actually it should be the opposite it's just they just need I feel it does hamper your confidence because everything is harder to do and it takes longer that it is really disheartening because you never get that praise because you're never going to be that top student but you're genuinely really trying yeah it like I I think that there is like I've had kids say to me before oh I'm not very good at English or I don't want to go to English or English isn't my favorite subject because I'm dyslexic and I can't do it and they'll like it's almost like there's it's it's a mask or it's something that they they use to kind of cover up their insecurity about them not being good at something. But then you do get students that will go, oh, well, I'm dyslexic, but they're using it as an excuse because they don't want to do it. And one of my favorite things is when they say, oh, well, you wouldn't know what it's like being dyslexic. And I say, well, I actually do know what it's like being dyslexic because I am dyslexic. And just the look of like shock on their faces is like, it, I, it probably makes me sound really mean being like, I love shocking children, but <laughs> I I like I like that kind of well, you can't use that excuse in here. That isn't it that's not okay because everybody has something that they might find difficult or something that they might find particularly hard, but other people still continue and go on. It's like I had a I was so awful at maths when I was younger, like when I was at school, I was in top set everything, but I was in bottom set maths. And it was because I just felt like I was stupid. And I, I did. I felt like I was stupid and nobody had recognized that I was having difficulties in other places. But because I think I think a lot of the, the reason that I did do so well when I was at school, particularly with English and history, which might sound strange, bearing in mind that I can't comprehend things and I have to read things more than once, was because I was desperate to be good at those things. And I wanted I wanted so badly to get the highest grade that I possibly could in English. And I wanted so badly to get a better history grade than my brother had got that I worked really like I worked really hard but I felt like I was stupid particularly at maths and I would accept if people were like oh it's just because you're dumb that's why you can't do it and it like it did affect my confidence and I think a lot of dyslexic students will allow it and will let people make them feel small and make them feel stupid because they can't do things that they themselves perceive that they should be able to do I think it is that is that perception that you're not quite um as 
as good as everybody else. I remember I'm I'm quite good at maths and I loved maths, but I was put in I was put in a lower set. I was moved down a set, and I was so upset that they moved me down. But I still got an A, and actually I, I went screw you, I'm going to do it for A level, and I did, and I did all right A level. I couldn't. There was one. There was, it was really weird. I could I got A's on everything except for. I can't remember what it was now. There was one type of maths. I think it was mechanics or something that I got an E in and it brought down the average of everything. But I found it really weird that my brain just couldn't comprehend that one type of maths, but the other types I could. But I know I struggled with, I did maths in quite a long way. I think, was it me and you chatting about it the other day? Like if I was doing my times tables, um, like I have to like work out what a lower amount is and then times it by that amount. And like I, I get, I always get to the right answer, but my brain works in a really weird way of doing it. Yeah, I every everything that I do maths wise is the most complicated way that you could possibly do it, and it's the most long winded way that you're doing it. Like with with time table with times tables, I either can remember them because there's something about them that I remember. Like six six is a thirty six. I remember that because I think saying six 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 is really fun and it's something that sticks. <laughs> but I could not tell you what seven times seven is. I've got no idea. But I'm, I I don't even really want to sit here and work it out because it makes me feel a bit ill. <laughs> but if I have like in to, my head I'm doing the same I'm like right so five seven thirty five then yeah. I've got to add on two sevens which is 14 and then 35 plus 14 will get me to the right answer like that's how my brain works that's yeah. not how a normal person's brain work no and it it is like it's like a, a not like I feel like a normal person I say normal person a person who doesn't have this would go from a to b in a straight line but I'll go from I'll start at a and then I'll zigzag all the way up to be rather than actually going the straightest route because I, I physically can't because I don't yeah. I don't know how to get there I feel like there's obstacles in the way that are impossible for me to get over it's that I think with me as well is but I do find that I love problem solving I love kind of looking at things and working out how things go and I can be like oh that just goes there and and so I'm quite quick in in things like that um, I remember doing the nursery furniture when I was pregnant with my um, ex-husband and he was trying desperately to put this wardrobe up and he couldn't do it. He got so annoyed. He left to have a shower and he's just got really annoyed. I took it apart at kind of eight months pregnant and put it back up again in the time that he had a shower. And he got <laughs> so frustrated with me because he was trying to read the instructions and do it. But I could visually just see it and make it. So for me, like, I know that that's kind of a strength of, kind of being dyslexia there's a, a, a great video um by the um british dyslexia so- association so uh, they have a lovely video which is really kid friendly so um do play that to your class if anybody is wanting to kind of explain this and it's, it's the idea that brains are different but one of the positives is that you can kind of break things down and you can see how things go together a bit better so and i do think that is one of my strengths as, as well at teaching. I can see how to break things down and scaffold things perhaps easier than other teachers. I can, I can see how to build the stepping stones. One thing I'm really good at is uh, solving murder mysteries. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, escape rooms. I am so good at escape rooms. I'm like out of there. Oh, I'm good at escape rooms until they start making you do maths. And then I'm just <laughs> like, I've got no idea. That's like me, but the spelling bit, if I have to spell something. <laughs> really oh yeah, all that. Anything that anything that's spelled that I can't visualise. 
uh, I find that really hard too. <laughs> yeah, they're the bits that I lose time on. It's quite interesting. But I mean, obviously for me, I'm an art teacher. So the idea that you are creative as dyslexic obviously plays to my strength, but it plays to your strength as well. I suppose in, in the creative side of writing, you must um, see that side come out. I have found that I am particularly, cre- I, I think that's one of my strengths is like, just as a human, that I am creative and I can visualize things, but I like, and if I, I can kind of put things together in a way that is aesthetically pleasing as well, in terms of like my PowerPoints are, I think they're beautiful. They're like one of my most favorite things. <laughs> and I'll, I really pride myself on like the color schemes of PowerPoints and putting things together. But it also, it, it seems quite like fickle, but the way that I'll like make a PowerPoint, so, if we're doing Romeo and Juliet, the borders are all pink because I think Romeo and Juliet love and then it all links together. And then um, if I do Macbeth and it's red because Macbeth kills people, so blood is red, that obviously makes logistical sense to me. And I can kind of visualize what I want students to do in kind of pictures, which I think anything, I remember like Arsenko, she says all the time, anything that helps um, SEN children will help not like children that don't have those issues as well so it is a lot of what I do is quite visual and a lot of my lessons have visual cues in them or um a few years ago we were introduced to graphic knowledge uh, graphic organizers and that kind of way of designing a graphic organizer and that this very logical kind of uh this is a straight path or like you just you make mind maps or um there's a there's a structure called an input output machine which I find really helps me in terms of like how to analyze a character it's like well the character behaves like this so if we put this character into this situation how do we think they're going to respond and anything kind of visual or anything that has a creative element to it I find I'm really good at and it, it helps my students in my classroom as well. I I also found when I was at school that one of the things that I was particularly good at was drama um, in terms of because you have to remember things and it's about kind of interpreting how people feel. And I think being dyslexic, it does give you a, a, like a heightened sense of empathy because you know how hard you are having to work. You know how difficult like the just your general life can be and from waking up in the morning to going to sleep at night you can find things really really difficult and so when I then see a student who is particularly struggling it I do have a very strong sense of empathy with them which I think being dyslexic also gives you I I would agree I think I think I'm very empathetic and I I I perhaps find that the, the difficult kids work better for me because I do have that empathy I do try and understand and I do try and understand that life can be a bit harder I mean we have a certain student that will wander between the two of us um, (laughs) and she's just been diagnosed with dyslexia she'll love the fact that she's been uh, silently mentioned in this that's exactly what I was about to say she (laughs) but it is that I think it's that understanding that we get it we understand she works so hard but she's never going to be that top student because it is that much harder for her but I just I 
but I love the fact that she's got that grit and determination anything you tell her and she will kind of do it but you do kind of have that understanding but I'm very similar to you like I I very much am very into the visuals every powerpoint of mine has visual example works but I quite often when my kids are doing my lessons and I still do this even when I'm teaching the same lesson like on other years that when I see kids doing something if I see them and I go oh they're, they're struggling with that they could do it this way I will like literally change my powerpoint there and then and like slot it up I will literally kind of adapt it I feel that I'm constantly looking for new different ways or if a kid asks me a question about the task that I've got on I'm like oh okay I need to change the wording or I need to add on that so it means that nobody else asks me that in any of the other classes like I just feel that I'm always trying to improve and add in those extra little things that will try and make their life easier that perhaps I didn't think about the first time yeah I think one one of the things that I have noticed recently that I do is that it's like the reinterpretation of information so if I put something on the board or if I say something and a child doesn't initially understand it then I have found that I'm quite good at taking that information and giving it to them in a way that they will understand and kind of giving a different explanation which is the same it's got the same ending it's got the same meaning or it's got the, the task is still the same but the rewording of it for that particular student and the amount of times that I've done it and all I've had to say is like a few things and give one example and they've gone oh okay I get it now it is that isn't it it's it's like sometimes I feel like we're better at perhaps explaining it or breaking it down so maybe that's like it's, it's, it's one of those I'm trying to find the the positives of being a teacher with dyslexia as well as the bits that like there are bits that are harder we do have to work hard we are going to have powerpoints with spelling and gram- grammar mistakes that's that's kind of a given I feel like I don't think anybody with dyslexia could have a perfect powerpoint or handout that doesn't have a mistake in it I feel like the odds are it's going to but yeah. we have these other things that we're we're really good at. Yeah, and I think there are, there are a num- there, there are so many positives to being us. And if nothing else, I think it kind of does show that I think sometimes students believe and I think you might have said it earlier that they don't have anything to give because they struggle so much that they just think that they're failures. And actually, by having you and me and our other colleagues that we have that have dyslexia and let their classes know that they have dyslexia, it does have a positive impact in that we are not, we're not hiding behind it. The amount of children who have educational needs and don't want to tell people or don't want people to know that they're being given a laptop to write on because they can't write quick enough or that they've got a reading pen or they have to go and have a scribe the amount of children that just try to hide behind that and just don't they don't want others to know because they're worried about what other people will say and having us in a school situation and having us going around being like you in the secret dyslexic society it does make it more uh, it makes it almost like people, I, I feel like students look at me and they go, oh, but well, Miss, Miss is really struggling. Like Miss has struggled and Miss has had to work really hard. 
But if Miss can do it, then like I can. I think especially for when the year sevens transfer in and they're like, suddenly they're at this new school with lots of teachers that don't perhaps understand their needs, that it can be quite scary. But you see their little faces light up when you're like, me too. Or when I do my spelling test, I'm like, right, I tell them my spelling test story because I'm still traumatized by it. <laughs> um, and I go, right, I'm not going to do that. If everyone gets nine out of 10, you get a commendation. I'm not going to make it 10 out of 10 because I wouldn't be able to get 10 out of 10. So I'm going to make it nine out of 10. And that's what we're going to do. And I find as well, when I'm saying the words, I try and spell them out to try and give them as yeah. much of a clue. Exactly I'm like, why am I doing this spelling test? I'm just giving it away. But I can't help it. I just feel so bad for them. Yeah. I um, I did an assembly to year seven where I told the entire year seven cohort that I was dyslexic. And the whole assembly was about the fact that I have these struggles and I do have to struggle and I do get through my day and I I will encounter things at any given point where I might find something more difficult than the teacher next door but I still continue and I kind of I kind of did this assembly not really thinking anything of it I was just like well it's important to me it's an important thing about me that I I want to share with people and um, a couple of days later, a teacher came to me and said that a student had gone to them and had said that they were really struggling and they wanted to let the teachers know because they were wor- they'd, they'd been worried about telling anyone. But because of my assembly, they felt that actually it, that there wasn't anything shameful in it and they wanted to make sure that somebody knew that they were struggling because they wanted help, whereas before... They were too scared to say anything because they didn't want people to laugh at them. And all I did was stand in front of some year sevens and go, by the way, kids, I'm dyslexic. So there might be some spelling mistakes. And sometimes I find it hard to find the right words and I act like I'm a bit broken for a sec. But like, there is nothing wrong with that. No, I think it's completely that. It's it's getting them to understand that there are benefits of it. And there's that that um, beautiful uh, clip, isn't there, on um what was the show called like educating yorkshire or something where there's the little boy and he's talking about having dyslexia and then the head turns around and goes i've got dyslexia too and you know what it's your superpower like it means that you're you think you may make things a little bit hard sometimes but you think differently and you can problem solve and and you just have a better different way of thinking about things and actually it's your superpower and i think it is just having somebody else to say actually just got to get education is a little bit hard and a bit tough when like you do have dyslexia but like you will go far you've got other attributes that are going to help you succeed at life that are a benefit from being dyslexic yeah and it it is that it's it makes it makes us think about things in a different way and whilst it may not be the a to b in a straight line way it's think of all of the things that you can discover and all of the things that become apparent to you when you're having to divert and go those different ways i'm um just going to play our uh, news for today because we're chatting away and then when we come back um i'm going to read out some of chloe's uh, little statements that she told me about what it was like for her being dyslexic and we'll we'll see whether they match up with us shall we yes <laughs> 
This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Christian Institute website carries a story on the reminder by Minister of State for Schools, Nick Gibb, that schools in England have a duty to remain politically impartial in their teaching and extracurricular activities. The guidance was published last year. But Mr Gibb was responding to MP Miriam Cates' references to a YouGov poll, which appears to reveal that the majority of UK children are being taught political ideology as fact, and he issued the reminder. Ms Cates was referencing a view that children are being taught that they can be born in the wrong body, as well as resources being used in schools which focus on the topic of gender identity. The DfE guidance comes as Scotland attempts to introduce new legislation on gender recognition, which is opposed by Westminster. The guidance states that schools should not under any circumstances work with or use materials produced by external agencies that take extreme political positions. The Varsity website reports on findings by a right-wing think tank that elite universities were more likely to use progressive terminology on their websites. Cambridge tops the table in the Radical Progressive University Guide, although the think tank Civitas does not appear to see this as a positive. Varsity highlights comments reported in the Daily Mail, which warned that half of our universities peddle their woke agenda to students. The think tank generated the findings after exploring university websites and news reports, looking for a series of key phrases including trigger warning, white privilege and anti-racism. Those with high incidences of key phrases were at the top of the table. Varsity acknowledges a view that Cambridge's political culture is to the left of the national one, but also highlights key figures in academia who feature prominently in the conservative press. It's hard to stay away from politics as announcements of strikes continued late last week. The TES reports on the continued deadlock in Scotland whilst the Evening Standard covers talks between ministers and unions in England after the NEU confirmed strike dates for the coming weeks and months. These strikes are set to impact schools in England and Wales, although the BBC further reports on talks in Wales. Its news website reports that teachers and school leaders have been offered a one-off payment by the Welsh Government, similar to that offered to health workers, although unions have already said that the offer is not enough. Scottish media outlets have also carried a story about what it describes as fears about violence in schools. A clip now widely shared on social media shows an altercation between two students and that took place on the same day a male pupil was left unconscious following an assault. Whilst Police Scotland have said it's investigating both incidents, it has sparked debate on the state of behaviour in schools, particularly as such incidents have featured in headlines before. The Scottish Government has previously stated they're investing an additional £15 million this year to enhance capacity to effectively meet the needs of young people, and that they were very clear that violence is unacceptable. 
In further political news, the petition put forward by three men known as the Three Dads Walking will go to Parliament. The men, who all lost daughters to suicide, want to get suicide prevention on the school curriculum. The petition they set up now has more than 155,000 signatures, which means that it will be discussed in Parliament, after previously failing to be heard. Finally, more than 20,000 defibrillators will be sent to almost 18,000 state-funded schools by the end of the academic year. It comes after the government committed to ensuring there was a device in every school last year. The rollout comes after campaigning from the Oliver King Foundation and its founder, Mark King, whose son died at 12 from a cardiac arrest while swimming at school. Guidance to support schools has been created, including awareness videos. And Education Secretary Gillian Keegan praised the work of the Oliver King Foundation and described the rollout as a huge milestone. Mr King stated, defibrillators save lives and that he hoped that families do not have to suffer the heartbreak of unnecessarily losing a child. This is for our Ollie. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, a while ago I asked you what is your go-to piece of tech? This week, I had the pleasure of talking to Ian Kenyon, CEO of Wirral Respite and Alternative Provision, also known as RAP for short. So, Ian, what is your go-to piece of tech in your setting? Thanks, Steve. In our organisation, we are absolutely embedded in sharing our information and our data via the cloud. And there's loads of software out there to do it. And there's a lot of bespoke software for our type of organisation student information management services, uh, the likes of Sims or Arbor or, or, or things like that. But unfortunately, they're all built around big organisations, big schools, uh, schools with up to 1,200 students. Certainly not for schools that have a turnaround of students uh, who are completing courses in 12 weeks and those students who are potentially returning but require new files. We've tried proprietary software. It's very, very expensive. But actually, what we've fallen back to is what Google provides. Uh, using G Suite, which is now Google Workplace, we have access to spreadsheets, to um, form filling uh, software for for data collection, uh, Google Docs, which is, you're very familiar with everything via traditional Microsoft offices. Being able to link Docs uh, and Sheets and Forms together has been almost transformational for our organization. It's not the cheapest. Uh, I will say the per user price matches uh, what other software like Zoho or, or Microsoft will do, um, but offers a simpler version for us um, and offers us some interactivity that we've never had before. It handles our email, it handles our, our, our student information, so gathering attendance, it handles our finance, uh, so invoicing. Um, the, the, the way that the suite works, the way that the package works, just works really well for us. But with very little additional investment in time, effort and training, um, Google offers us everything that we need. The final sort of element that, that has been transformational for us is then being able to use proprietary hardware such as Chromebooks or even Android phones and the ability for us to then transfer our data and, and to, to be live in the cloud at all times has been uh, a really good thing for our organisation. So there you have it, my number one go-to. It's definitely got to be Google Workplace. Thank you, Ian. As always, I'd love to hear what you want to know about tech. Do you have a go-to piece of tech? 
Let us know at TT Radio Official. I'm Steve Woods, and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Okay, so we were meant to be joined by Chloe, but unfortunately she, she had something come up, but she's the science teacher at our uh, school and is part of our secret dyslexic society. Um, so uh, she wrote me a couple of things. So when I asked her when she finally uh, first realised she was dyslexic. So during high school, she always had trouble with reading comprehension. So she could read well, but struggled processing the information, often had to reread information in order to understand it. She knew she was a terrible speller, um, and especially words aloud and if had to spell something she always had to write it down and visualize the words and then she became better through repetition uh, visualizing it by looking at the word when it was written down and kept kind of going through it it wasn't until she was uni- at university that she was actually diagnosed by a specialist at the university but in order to have the official diagnosis with the external company she had to pay 450 pounds so at the time being a student she couldn't afford it and just coped with university as best she could but she felt she had lots of revision and often felt like she was working a thousand times harder than everyone else which is quite similar to um what we've said um i've said how does it affect your education i feel like she's showing off here she was really successful and got a's in english at gcse and a levels and got a t1 degree in psychology at the university of york however it affects her in the sense that it took longer to process the information than others and revision took Um, longer due to her having to reread information and the way she wrote academically was also picked upon Um, and I I would agree with that like I felt like no matter how much I tried to kind of write really well it was never quite sophisticated enough it was never that top bit and I think it is knowing Chloe she works exceptionally hard so she would have worked really hard to get uh, those grades and I think for me I obviously got diagnosed quite early so I got 25% extra time now at A level I did really random A levels so I had chemistry and history of art and clearly they thought nobody else in the country would do that odd combination because the exams were at the exact same time (laughs) so um and their exams were two hours long but I got the extra 25% so it was two and a half hours and because they're at the same time, I had to do one of them, then sit with the teachers and eat my lunch with the teachers. I wasn't allowed to talk to anybody. And then in the afternoon, I had to then sit and do the history of art one. So for me, like writing for five hours with dyslexia was a very difficult kind of thing to do. But I think I would have really struggled if I hadn't got the extra time. But there's also that kind of pretense of being the one that still sat in the hall having that extra time but I know that I wouldn't have done as well without it. And especially when it comes to like the teacher tests, having to do the maths and the English test. Oh gosh, I was so glad that my school had the evidence to show that so I could get the extra time. I found them probably the most hardest part of my teacher training. And I have a friend who's dyslexic and she failed hers twice and then had to wait a year before she was able to retake it. And she was the most amazing teacher. So she was teaching as an instructor, but just because she couldn't get through those tests she was kind of basically kept back in her teaching um so I do think there are some things to think about in terms of how it affects it could be stopping kind of good teachers getting into education yeah those um one of the reasons that I went and got um diagnosed in the first place was because I knew that I would not be able to pass the maths test without extra time And I knew that 
I like being a teacher is the only thing I ever wanted to do like in my whole entire life like that was what I was going to do and I was always going to be a teacher and every single thing that I did up until those until finding out that I had to do a maths test before they'd let me on the course was geared towards being a teacher and to discover that you can't potentially the one thing that you've worked your entire life to do is going to be taken away from you because you simply don't have enough time to work out these problems for me was like it was devastating and when I was diagnosed as being dyslexic I felt like a, a a sense of vindication because I was like see it's not that I don't work hard enough it is because I like I physically I'm doing the best I can but it was also like a it was it was relief for me in terms of I just felt like there was there was somebody who was saying there is there is a reason why you can that you can't do these things and we are we are going to accommodate you and we are going to try to make this a level playing field for you and those other people that are doing this and I I passed both of those tests first time and yeah I was, I was proud I passed first time yeah. it was uh, the anxiety beforehand was horrific and I I never studied as hard as I did for those because I just I wanted to pass them so badly yeah I had um I was working as an LSA at the time and at the school that I was working at there was an, a math specific LSA who I, I I remember going to um, lunch one day and just sitting and crying because I was like, there was just no way that I can do these tests. And she offered to help me and she gave up her lunch times three times a week and we would sit and she bought me GCSE like revision guides and she sat and she taught me how to pass them. And we would do the practice tests and she would go through and she would time me on each question. And there was absolutely no way that I would have passed them without her. But it was, I was given up three of my lunch times a week. She was given up three of her lunch times a week. I was, I was working so hard and I was revising so hard to pass them. And I know, and I, at the same time, there was a, um, a, a guy who also was gonna do them. And I think he went out the night before and did his with a hangover and he passed. Yeah, it's that difference. I mean, I feel like if I admit this, they might strip me of my teaching qualification. But I remember Googling like QTS tests and like basically going through every website possible that would like maybe list a possible spelling that would come up. And I remember going through them and writing down all the spellings that any site had said or suggested and learning all of those and making sure I knew those like religiously. I think I even bought the book that goes with it to like, that suggests and and gives you tips and, and gives you examples and stuff. Like, I think I cared more about that than like my driving proficiency test. Like it was like the driving theory. Like I, I just was so panicked about it and just tried to do everything I could because I know I can teach. Like I, I was already teaching. I was teaching an instructor. The first lesson I taught um, was maternity cover, having never taught before. And I got a job straight off the bat, first lesson I'd, I'd ever taught. So I knew I could do it. But 
the idea that something as simple as that was going to stop me from being the great teacher that I am. I'm going to blow my own trumpet. You um, are a great teacher. <laughs> we are. Um, it's, it, is, it is, I don't know whether it's necessary to have that there, especially as we've all passed GCSE maths and English, like whether that's necessary anymore, I'm not quite sure. I think they actually have got rid of them now. Oh, it shows how long ago it was that I did it. <laughs> I feel like, well, I only know that because my cousin um, trained to be a teacher a couple of years ago and she she is dyscalculia. She's got dyscalculia. She um, has got diagnosed dyscalculia and she was, and I said to her, well, how are you going to pass the maths test? And she was like, what maths test? I said, well, the, the skills test. She's like, what skills test? And she didn't have to do it. And I remember saying some rather choice words to her about how lucky she was. Um, yeah. Because I do wonder how many people that would have perhaps prevented from being teachers that would have been great teachers had they just not had to go through that. I I do know someone that um failed it and she couldn't then take it again for another year. I think it was a year that they made you Yeah, yeah. they did they have to make you wait a year. Yeah, she then didn't take it. She had a place she was um she had a place on a, a drama teaching course. Um, which was really hard to get onto at the time because they were cutting them down. So she had this place on a drama course and um, they rescinded it. They took it away from her because she failed the test. But it was like, she she sort of said, well, if I can't pass this test, I don't want to do it. Like, And she would have been a great teacher and she now works in London as a PA to somebody like she she didn't she found a different path and she's found something that she wanted to do but which which she really enjoys but that wasn't her first choice her first choice would have been to be a teacher and she was denied that because she couldn't do the skills test and that that's the shame of it really I mean I think like we said, there are different aspects of dyslexia that kind of bring positive things to teaching. I know I know. one of the other things I struggle with is that it's the idea of having too many steps in one go. And I think that's that's one of the important things to scaffold with with dyslexic people is make sure they've like tick boxes. I think we talked about earlier and, and things like that. So they've got kind of steps to go in. Like I don't have a to-do list. I have a to-do book because if I don't write it down, I won't remember it. But if I have that in the conversation, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know how to do all of that. I remember that. Or if I watch something, I'm like, yeah, I can remember how to do that. But then afterwards, I'm like, nope, nope. I've done the first three things and I I cannot for the life of me remember the next bit. But at the time, it just seems so simple and I can completely remember it. But I feel that that kind of sequencing kind of thing does, I do struggle with sometimes. Yeah, I have. Um, I find color coding has helped me. Um, in terms of like, sometimes I I feel quite overwhelmed sometimes by the amount of things that I have to do because I I li- I will meticulously plan things out. Like it's not, it's not kind of like when I do a to do list, it's it it's long, and I'll specifically mention every single thing that I have to do, and then I'll go through it and I'll then color code it as to what is more important. And it's almost as if my brain will only then look at the important tasks. And then once the important tasks are done, I can then go back into the things that I've deemed as being not quite so important. And I find as well when I do um, like online things that I struggle with note taking because A, I need the kind of take up time to think and digest. 
but I'm trying to write notes on the things that I liked but I have to write it in kind of full sentences otherwise I won't remember what the little a couple of words will mean so I've got to write it in full and then my handwriting goes so out of the window that I don't actually remember or read be able to read what my notes say um so I find in like in that respect as a teacher that bit's quite difficult especially like when you're attending CPD or you're wanting to remember things or recall things I really want especially as an art teacher I want to be one of those beautiful people that do those really graphical notes that literally have little keywords that trigger something else but I can't I feel like I have to write everything down to be able to remember it all. One of my absolute like when Covid was going on and we had to do like meetings online in fact I still do do quite a lot of meetings online but it's when they ask a question and immediately then ask someone and I was doing a a CPD thing about oracy online like just in my house I was completely by myself I think I was trying to stop my cat from jumping on the keyboard and they asked this question and it was a question that it was like, where do you, why, why do you think Oracy has a place in schools? And then immediately went Eloise. And I was a bit like, <laughs> what? And I, I hadn't, I was like, um, um, and I just started saying words that I knew that had something to do with the topic because I hadn't been given the take up time in terms of me to kind of put the things that I needed to say into the right boxes and I needed to have that in order to answer the question. And I, I'm like, people must have thought I was crazy. Like people must have thought I was broken or I was buffering or something like it. It was awful. It's that it's that there's a lot to be said for in a moment. I'm going to ask somebody about this just to prepare. Like there's a lot to be said for that. I feel like as teachers with dyslexia you adapt and you you do more things for your students that perhaps I don't know whether other teachers would do them or not but because you kind of know how you feel in that situation you try and make it easier for our students and I think in a way it's not just dyslexic students I feel all students would benefit being taught how a dyslexic student would benefit if that makes sense yeah I um will give instructions three times before I'll kind of set children off to make sure that a it's the first time you say it that it's kind of you've said it but you know that only a few of them will have got it the second time it's those that have gone oh she's speaking that will then start listening and then the third time you've got them all and i quite frequently will kind of do little check-ins and say to children that i think potentially might have misunderstood what they're doing like oh what 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 have we now got to do what is the next step to see whether they've picked up on it or not I think it's also like obviously our school's doing a lot of cold calling at mo at the moment and that kind of even when we're doing the staff version that kind of fills me with dread the fact that I might be picked on to say something is kind of and I, I think that's where those dyslexic students do become a bit introverted and a bit quiet because there is that anxiety that you're not going to be able to say things correctly you're not going to be able to kind of and it is that thing, if you don't have that think up time, you're not going to be able to recall it. And, and then it becomes a panic and then your mind goes blank and it just becomes worse. Yeah. I, when, we, when we were doing that cold calling stuff, I have to admit, I did feel um, like I think I felt like I was maybe on the front foot rather than being on the back foot. Generally, because obviously the person that was doing the um, CPD at the time was a member of my department. 
And I was just kind of like, I'm pretty sure that whatever Jill is going to ask me will probably be about English because she knows that that's all I can do. So at that point, I was quite like, huh, like, I'll be fine. But when it's like somebody that is doing something from a different subject, I'm so concerned they're going to ask me something about like biology or they're going to ask me something about IT or they're going to ask me about geography and I've just got no idea. And then everyone is going to be like, huh. Like Eloise doesn't know anything, even though I know people aren't going to do that. There is something inside of me that goes, if you don't know the answer to this, or if you haven't thought about this, when someone asks you, everyone's going to laugh, even though I know that that isn't true. I think it's um, it's you can do the same with the students, isn't it? You can if you know your students well and you know your dyslexic student. If you are going to go to them, no, give go them go for them for the easy answer that you know they're going to nail to try and build up their confidence. Like, make sure you're kind of, if you do see them writing stuff, like praise them, make sure, because I think that's the thing, they they just end up, even though they're really intelligent, they end up in that middle of the road, and you want them to feel appreciated, and that, like, their hard work is worth it, Um, but it's also that idea that, kind of, it is, it is more challenging, and then, kind of, having that panic, you don't want to seem stupid, and especially for those kind of students, maybe writing on a board, that like I still panic now when I write on a board or if I type a live answer like I panic so badly and I will make mistakes I'm like oh 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 that was oh my my finger slipped I I, I do kind of don't necessarily own it if I'm typing live as well yeah I used to absolutely dread having to write on a board and then I started what I started to do is if I didn't know how to spell a word, I used to just deliberately make my handwriting really bad. Yeah. Yes, I did the same thing. To so if they said, Oh miss, what does that say? I could go, Oh, it says this. And then if anyone asked me how to spell it, I could then be like, Oh, it's it's on the board. But I would know that they couldn't read it because then they it would give me time to like Google it. Yeah. <laughs> so that I could make out like it was spelt right. And then if it was spelt right, if it was spelt right, like in the kind of weird squiggle, if it looked right, then it was fine. And if it looked, if I knew that I'd done it wrong, then I knew they wouldn't know that I'd done it wrong. Yeah. But it's just become one of those things now that I think I've been, I've been at our school for long enough to know that, or that the, the students that are there, I think the majority of them know. And I always make a point of telling any of the new cohort that I teach that, I am dyslexic and kind of giving them a rundown of the fact that sometimes words will be spelt wrong. Sometimes you'll ask me what something means and I will just have to double check it because I can't really remember. Um, sometimes I, I find as well, some of the, sometimes I, I do this thing where I'll know what I want to say, but the words aren't in the forefront of my mind. And I need, I need processing time. I need time to stand and kind of just stand and not say anything for a sec and to give myself the time to remember the word that I want to say and I feel like if you don't tell students that if I don't say to students by the way this is why I am doing it then they they think there's something seriously wrong because they don't appreciate that there is nothing wrong it's just I need more time to sometimes think of things and other people might and I'm uh, my biggest dread being a teacher with dyslexia is when the kids go, "How do you spell this word?" And I'm like, "Oh, 
uh, and I'll go to try and do it and I'll, I'll talk myself out of it. I'm like, no, no, I'm going to have to Google it. And I, I will make a big joke of it. I'm like, you really think asking the teacher with dyslexia how to spell that is the brightest idea? And I will kind of almost make a joke and be like, anybody else want to take this for me? Um, especially with my key stage four. I'm like, any, any, anybody else want to have a go at that before before I embarrass myself and have to Google it? Um, or some like like if they if I'm more comfortable with a class then I will attempt it and like, another kid will be like no miss that's not right and then I'll google and then I'll google it and be like oh you are right I'm wrong and just like but it it is kind of like putting yourself in that embarrassing situation that as an educator we should in theory know how to spell certain things but it is it is it is difficult and I think it is Especially, like, I feel for those kids with dyslexia that end up with those really long lists of words they're spelling incorrectly and things like that because they are trying, but but at the same time, it is we we probably all know that it is through hard work and repetition that you can get them to spell correctly. Um, but I know also from my notes that I find random things that I don't spell all the time quite difficult. And like I'll write them in my notes, and then above it I'll write it in a different way. It'll take sometimes it takes me three or four different attempts, and then I'm like, oh, that's how it was spelled. I like why did I not? Why did I write it like that? That I knew it was spelled like that, but I spelled that completely the wrong. And it takes me a little while to to get there. I think especially as well with like texting and pre like I really appreciate pre kind of predicted text and everything writing half the word for me that I just need to know the first couple of letters of a word now and I'm all right um, in the grand scheme of things. I will um, write the word out twice, write it out once in the way that I think it probably is spelt and then I'll write it out again in a way that I think it's probably not spelt and then I can figure, generally I can figure out which one is right based on which one looks right on the page but if I am asked what a word or how to spell a word, again, with my key stage four classes, particularly in my year 11 class, there is one student who is very good at spelling. And if a student asks me how to spell something, I'm always like, I don't know. And then I'll kind of say to the child who's quite good at spelling, how do you spell that? And he loves it. Like he loves being like top speller in the class. And he's constantly, every single time when we do Romeo and Juliet, I'm always saying, oh, Juliet's really naive. Can I spell naive? Oh, of course I can't. <laughs> and so I'm going, it's N-A, I think it might be N, I don't know, to, even now I don't know how to spell it, but I'll constantly spell it wrong. And then my top speller's like, no, miss, the A comes first or the I or whichever, I don't even know how to spell it now. But he's always going, no, it's this way round. And now I've just given up. And like, they know to ask him if they need to spell naive. But I think that's the the nice side of it is that if, if you can, it's working out what the strengths of your dyslexic students are to build up their confidence. And it's the same with the other students in the class. Everyone's got their own strength and individuality. Like nobody's going to have the same flight path through education there's going to be different subjects they're going to be better at and it is is us as educators to kind of work out which bits kind of work for different students and make sure I think especially there's dyslexic students that are trying really hard that are quite in the corner that we kind of do pick them up but also we create that safe space where like we know you're working hard we get how hard you're working because we do the same and that 
it is okay. You will find this a little bit difficult, but thinking about like those successful people, like they're not shortlist, like Albert Einstein. I mean, like what a mind there. So Richard Branson, like that, that is a creative man that is constantly developing. Um, and even like, and that's the thing, there's, there's sporting people. Like I do think sport wise, like I can think things creatively and I, um, and, and different things. I just look at them differently. Um, like, especially with friends that are in businesses and things, I'm like, why don't you do it this way? And they're like, I've never thought about that. And I remember being in a department meeting about something. I'm like, well, why don't we do this like this and, and then change this and do it that way? And everyone's like, well, that makes sense. But how on earth did you come up with that idea? And it is that um, we are, we do think differently, but there are benefits to it. Yeah. And Albert Einstein, um, there's a really famous quote from him where he says that, if you judge a fish by its ability to climb a tree, it will spend its whole life thinking that it's stupid. And I think particularly with dyslexia, it it is that, like that is what I feel. Like I, when I was at school, I was judged on my ability to do maths and I couldn't do it. And I found that kind of processing very difficult. And everyone would assume that I was stupid because I couldn't do it because I couldn't spell people were saying oh well you must work harder but I was being judged on the thing that I could I was never going to be able to do whereas I was so good at drama and I was really good at history and I was really good at English and people are so frequently keen to point out the things that you can't do rather than actually celebrating you for the things that you can and I I, I think that there is there is definitely an element of making sure that children with dyslexia, that they feel confident in what they can do rather than focusing on what they can't. And the, um, the, the student that we mentioned earlier, who'll be ecstatic that we've mentioned her, um, <laughs> she actually wants to do English literature for her A-levels, even though she does find it hard. And I'm convinced that it is because she is celebrated for the things that she can do. In fact, she wants to do English literature and art, which, you know, we should be really proud of ourselves for that. But she is celebrated for the things that she can do with us in ways that I'm not necessarily sure that she finds everywhere. And even though she probably finds our subjects hard, she is willing to work at them because she's found that she's being praised for the things that she can do and I think that's it it's that as as dyslexic you're working so hard but you're getting the same like kind of quite average kind of results even though you are putting the same effort in if not more than those top students and it's finding that place where somebody appreciates how you're working and almost adapts and helps your style I know that I've adapted the way that we kind of do projects to suit her style and she's just uh, flowed with it and 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 had that success and I think it's that having those people that are going to be your champions and your uh, and tell you that you have got your superpower and you are going to do well and you are doing well what you're doing is working like you're not a bad kid you're not stupid you're just trying really hard and that it's it's good to get um a bit of recognition for that and that it is you will get there it's just going to be a little bit harder but but your brain is unique and you 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 will do really well. 
Yeah. It's not judging people on their ability to climb trees if they're fish. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to end it. So thank you very much for joining my show tonight. Uh, anybody that's joined in late, feel free to download it on Teach Talk Radio. It will be um, on there shortly. Um, and thank you very much for joining me. Thanks, Hannah. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.